to Regular Hours, episode 169 for June 29th, 2021. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hessenflow. And I'm Pam Fedor. We're here at another, we've got another stop on our tour of the apocalypse, Pam. This is the post-apocalyptic time. We started this show at the beginning of a pandemic. We said, hey, there's a pandemic. We should do something. Let's start a book club. And now the pandemic is over. I'm declaring it over. I've declared the pandemic has ended. And now it is time for the post-apocalyptic story, Station Eleven. This was published in 2014 by Emily St. John Mandel. This is one of my favorite post-apocalyptic novels. And I have a lot, but this is one of my favorites. It takes such a different angle than any other post-apocalyptic novel I know. And you are apocalyptic expert you are the the go-to for dystopia utopia and apocalyptic novels for this show (laughs) and i just want to say i'm just glad that anytime that there is an apocalypse that it's over so i'm just happy (laughs) This, this is one of those pretty standard post-apocalyptic stories isn't it that the beginning of this we see the normal quote-unquote whatever that means normal life and then that goes away very quickly and we we fast forward to the post-apocalyptic lifestyle well i just want to say that we know it's over because we're going to plays <laughs> that's when we know that the pandemic has ended when we're allowed to go see plays again i, I look forward to that well what Bro- broadway is open yeah or they have announced it's opening the foo fighters performed in a giant stadium last week theaters are open yeah and so you know th- we got a book here that's showing that too <laughs> you're gonna make me watch movies it's, again aren't you it's practically the same um <laughs> life inter- imitating art here we go <laughs> <laughs> it is funny though because I actually didn't teach this novel as the pandemic was just ramping up as we were going to online um to online learning just because I was worried it might be a little bit triggering now I have started to to put it back on my teaching list so I actually wanted to start with this novel I want to start with the epigraph So this is, uh, the epigraph is a very sort of deep poetic moment by Czesław Milos, the very famous Polish-American Nobel Prize winning poet. And it's really quite beautiful, I think. The bright side of the planet moves toward darkness and the cities are falling asleep each in its hour. And for me, now as then, it is too much. There is too much world. Now, when you read that, were you like, okay, on to the story, or did you pause? There's goosebumps with that. There's goosebumps, right? Yeah, that is like that's pretty amazing. And, and, you know, the deal is, is if you think about what we're experiencing now and what, what a number of people are experiencing right now, they spent a, a year roughly in isolation. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe they had Zoom calls. Maybe they had a podcast they listened to where we read books. But really, they spent a lot more time alone than they probably have in any time in their life. Mm-hmm. And now... You know, the pools are opening up and um, people are going to do from the darkness. And for some people, they're experiencing some anxiety because all of a sudden they're thrown back into the everyday life. Some people are resisting that. In fact, there was articles in the paper where people are um, choosing not to return to work 
they, they quit their job as opposed to going back to work, mm-hmm. um, or at least as they were traditionally doing. What are we finding out for the people who are working during this time, where they're working lots of hours and, and they're, they're exhausted and, and things of that nature? So, you know, we're emerging from this pandemic. And what, is, what does it really mean? It it's, could be too much. It could be too much. And it may be an opportunity for people who are participating in the world, the living, to reassess what they value in life. Wow, that's the deepest Chip has gotten in 15 months of this show. I read that somewhere. (laughs) I read that somewhere. I really like that you point to that notion of being overwhelmed. And here I think um, Milos is really talking about like being overwhelmed by beauty and also by like how small each of us is. Like as our city comes into daylight, a city around the world is going into darkness. And this is a theme, that theme of being like struck or overwhelmed by beauty and scope that comes up throughout the novel. Um, It reminds me of this moment in chapter five when we first meet Miranda. And she says that evening on the beach below her hotel, Miranda was seized by a loneliness she could not explain. She thought she knew everything there was to know about this remnant fleet, but she was unprepared for its beauty. The ships were lit up to prevent collisions in the dark. And when she looked out at them, she felt stranded. The blaze of light on the horizon, both filled with mystery and impossibly distant, a fairy tale kingdom. And it's like in that moment, so Miranda, you know, who's like just this business person who's in charge of all these shipping containers, she's looking out and she's just blown away by how beautiful industry is. The idea of finding beauty in normality, finding beauty in in the average, in this industry, in in buildings, in architecture. This is certainly thematic to some of the story here. Well, it's the industry of the day, though, too. I mean, there is a, you know, in economics, we use the term spontaneous order. You know, each person being an actor out there and doing the thing that they're doing, and somehow we get an emergent order from that. And it connects you to the thing that arrives in the mail or, or that thing at the grocery store from a faraway place. It just happens to be there because you're going to make whatever you're going to make. There is a, there's a beauty to that that gets, you know, sometimes gets lost because it's just so natural. It's just part of your world. But a hundred years ago, that was the most extraordinary thing in the, in the world. We, we forget how extraordinary today's society is. And I think that this comes back again and again throughout the novel SBC. And there's this moment in chapter 11 that's just sort of this reflection, exactly as you were just saying, Chip, we have, you know, so much order and organization in our extremely busy world today. But if we lost all of that, if we lost electricity, if we lost 99% of the population, the world would look so different. And as she reflects on that in chapter 11, she says, what was lost in the collapse? Almost everything, almost everyone, but there is still such beauty. So this notion that beauty is bigger than society, than culture, than industry, than anything human made, it's sublime. And so even while we tell all of these stories about specific people, 
before and after the apocalypse. I think that's the theme that kind of pervades this novel. And even though Mandel explores all of the typical themes of an apocalypse, that idea of beauty that's bigger than humanity, I haven't seen that in any other post-pandemic novels. That's what I love about this book. And that is the main theme of this story, how art goes on, how art becomes the beauty of this society in, in the midst of all of this death, all of this apocalypse, beauty in art remains. Is it art or is it just na nature, like natural part of the world? I mean, think of think art, art or mathematics or whatever you want to use, um, some part of the humanities uh, could explain the 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 nature the nature, the nature of uh, the moment hmm. the nature remains and and we're filtering that through how we're reviewing yeah you know, how are how we subjectively look at reality hmm. anyway I don't know I'm 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 just pulling things out welcome to philosophy with Chip there you yes go. I agree that the the theme of art is tied to the theme of nature because art is imitating life or life is imitating art and we are reading a post-apocalyptic post book uh, in, in June. And, and, well, I was going to say, and rediscovering what was important. Wow. <laughs> now, I personally love that she opens this book with a theater production. And it's kind of great because the very first scene, like you, you knew this was like a pandemic novel, and all of a sudden, you're in the Elgin Street Theater in Toronto. Arthur Leander's on the stage. And you're like, wait, what's happening here? And the opening line is kind of great. The king stood in a pool of blue light, unmoored. And here we have the king, not Arthur Leander, <laughs> King Lear, mm -hmm. standing on the stage. And he's about to die, right? So he's unmoored. He's not connected. And the production of King Lear, as it's described, has like super great stage effects. It has snow. King Lear's daughters are little kids instead of grown women. It's like really interestingly set up. And we see it through the perspective of Jivan, who's at this, who's at this production, used to be paparazzi, is now studying to be a paramedic. And he's uncertain. Oh my gosh, is King Lear having a heart attack? Should I? run up to the stage and interrupt this performance because this guy might die or, or should I not? What if I'm wrong? Mm -hmm. Is it a heart attack? And boy, does it remind me of, is this a pandemic, right? Like, mm -hmm. Point, are you sure that you're in an emergency on like that little tiny notion of in one theater as one paramedic in the audience or in the big way that we just saw, at what point does the World Health Organization call it a pandemic? At what point do you shut things down? Almost always too late. Wow. That's, this is the, dun, dun, dun. This, this, uh, this, is, <laughs> this is the most philosophical book that we've read. Is, wow. Did, did we tell everybody to, um, to turn the lights down, put on the lava lamp, and we're going to get like really philosophical? <laughs> Grab a cup of coffee. <laughs> the idea of not knowing 
the the lack of knowledge right there at the beginning of this story the danger of not knowing is this guy dying should i be acting or should i be sitting back and enjoying this performance that's wonderful isn't that the brilliant insight because oh, yeah. There, you, 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 it's a natural part of it. Uh, am I there to observe, or am I act- actively participating? And when do I have to intervene? Mm-hmm. And when Jivan stands up, his girlfriend's like, oh, "What are you doing? Sit down." Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> so I, I don't know, since we have a, a literature professor here and a, um, a Shakespeare expert too, is there something? Uh, specific about this production is the reason why she chose this one versus one of the other ones. I, there's certainly the, the theme of King Lear is age, is the old people versus the next generation. When, at what point do you leave your position because you are the old generation? And at what point do the younger people take over? Which is very interesting that she chose to make the, the children very young people here so that she could forward the story 20 years and still have you know reasonably uh spry people in their her her post-apocalyptic story but yeah if they had chosen any other play it would not have that same theme am am i correct pam absolutely and i think that you know arthur is an aging actor and he's just you know, he, he doesn't enjoy aging as G Ben thinks when he's like, wait a minute, I've interviewed this guy when I'm about to try to save his life. But in my former life, um, as a reporter, I've interviewed this guy. He doesn't want to be playing King Lear. He wants to be playing action heroes, um, and Hollywood. And here he is back in Canada. This could be Tom Cruise. I just want to let you know, this could be Tom Cruise. (laughs) Okay. So in, in reality, King Lear is that role that when an aging actor becomes old enough to play King Lear, his career is over. Really? That is, that is the role it's, it's mentioned constantly. That's exactly why she chose this play is like, that's where Arthur is in his life. Also, it's super important that the novel opens with the last natural death before the pandemic starts killing everybody right? Arthur does not have the Georgian flu. Arthur dies of a heart attack because he doesn't take care of himself. He's now old enough to play King Lear and he dies of totally natural causes. And that's the last time we're going to see someone die of natural causes for a long, long time. Because now, from now on, even if you died because you got bit by a dog and didn't have antibiotics to treat it, it's because of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So that's, She's kind of, it's, it's cool that she uses a natural death as the transition point between before and after. What Jivan recognizes when he talks to his friend at the hospital, whoa, this is the day that we're going to have as before the pandemic and after the pandemic. And I love that before and after. Mm, We are certainly going to talk about before and after with the COVID-19. There is certainly a, 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 definite line between those places we use the word definite line but it's 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 still very blurry we we, we you know we we announce hey covid's over but in many parts of the world they're still experiencing it and even here in the united states you may know someone who is still suffering 
from COVID or, or gets COVID. 20 years from now, there will be a definite line. That, oh, sure. that was my Absolutely. point. Good point. Good point. <laughs> There's, boy, there is some interesting characterizations in this first part where we are very quickly told by the author who are the main characters of her story and who are the the bit players. Yeah, Mandel is really known as a very, very good craftsperson. And Steve, I love that you noted that element. Tell us a bit more about that. There are characters in this story who have names, and then there are characters in the play that are not named. They are only named with the character names that they are playing in the play. And they all wear red shirts too, don't they, Steve? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, that's exactly what she's doing. She is giving us those bit players who are not going to be important to us. We're, we're, they're so not important that we don't know their names. His name is Guy. Guy. <laughs> I didn't even have a last name. Ga Ga Galaxy's Quest once again reappears. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I don't even have a last name. <laughs> the, it's it's very it's shorthand it's right. it's shorthand for this but she uses it so well and she goes on to use it throughout the rest of the story where when we get to the post-apocalyptic lifestyle there are characters who are named seventh guitar and yep. flute because they don't they're not important to the story and she does that so well here but they have rhythm <laughs> <laughs> they've got music They've got their gal. Who could ask for anything more? No, wrong show. <laughs> yes, and because there are there are a lot of characters in this novel. Because we have, you know, in both halves of the novel, as we move between flashbacks and the present day, twenty years after the apocalypse, we do have so many characters. So she really does set us up nicely to be able to cognitively process all of the materials she's providing. She also really makes a big deal between the relationship of the natural and the artificial. And mm -hmm. we see this on the stage. There's fake snow on the stage. And then when Jivan goes outside, it's actually snowing. And the mix of the two on his shoulder. And we see that very prominent sort of the um the fake snow which is the artificial life the real snow which is natural and then the blending of the uh the fake and the the, the natural very thematic she she shows us right from the beginning there how we're going to see this idea of playing and this idea of reality and the very interesting intermix between those two i love that then we get to the end of chapter two. She's okay. I have to say, the end of almost every chapter, she gives us one sentence that is that is a gut punch. But here at the end of chapter two, she writes, "Of all of them there at the bar that night, the bartender was the one who survived the longest. He died three weeks later on the road out of the city." Like, okay, here here we go. <laughs> Like we are, he, we, this is, this is everybody's dead except for the bartender who dies alone on the road on the way out of the city. 
Okay. In three weeks. <laughs> Don't three weeks later. <laughs> and we, we mentioned this at the beginning of the show. This is one of those post-apocalyptic stories where we are not getting the details of the apocalypse. It's just we're going to go on to the post-apocalypse. So, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger is usually what is said at a bar. And the bartender certainly has been pickled. <laughs> <laughs> Now, it's interesting that we spend that first chapter with Arthur, but he dies immediately. So really get to know him only after his death. Now, what is the impact of that? And what stands out to you about Arthur? Well, the first part is his last name is Leander, which is one of those Greek gods that hero and Leander story is is one of those stories that is mentioned in Shakespeare, what, six different plays where he he uses leander like okay now we we know who this guy is leander was a a person who would swim across the strait every night to meet hero or Yira, um and she was at the top of the tower and she had a light for him and one night he was swimming across the weather was really bad and the light was blown out so he got lost at sea and he drowned and so her response was to fall off the tower to meet him in the afterlife. That's so Shakespearean, isn't it? Isn't that so star-crossed lovers, two people who who are supposed to be together and fate drives them apart? This, this is why Shakespeare used this so often. And they, and they choose to be together. Mm-hmm. And both of them are tragic losses, mm-hmm. at least, at least in, in this world. And then I think Arthur Leander is like the 21st century version of that. He's been married three times. He's now having an affair with the woman who's in charge of the kids in this play. And he is the opposite of Starcross. Like there's no, there's no soulmates in the world of Arthur Leander. Huh. Right? I mean, he's, he's pure artifice and he's a celebrity. I feel like in this section uh, where he dies and people are like, okay, what do we do? No one knows. Like, does everybody else know he's sleeping with Tanya? Am I the only one? Should I say anything? Or is it, do other people know? Um, the calls are made. The calls are made to his agent, his lawyer, and his three ex-wives. And then someone's like, wait, he has a best friend. Oh, goodness. We should call the best friend as well. I mean, this is someone who's super famous. And yet, how is he remembered? By his accomplishments? By his impact on people? Right. And of course, because of the pandemic, little do they know as they're rushing around trying to figure out how to deal with his death. Really, no one will ever really read his obituary. The world's about to end as we know it. Well, that, that's a great point. The, the celebrity is lost. Mm-hmm. In fact, his his anchors to life are not very deep at all. Because mm. you really, who was the first person? They're going to call the attorney, the, the lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And um, you're right with the apocalypse coming. Not only is his celebrity vanished, he's lost in time because it doesn't matter anymore. And then the author brings us back to him over and over again in, in subsequent chapters. And he becomes very central to the story. It's a very, very interesting way to to show us what a life can be. That's a great point. I I use this when I'm working with clients sometimes as we talk a little bit about, you know, can you name your grandparents? Mm -hmm. Can you name your parents? Can you name your grandparents? How about your great, great grandparents? Mm -hmm. How about their parents? Unless you've done genealogy, 
you realize how quickly you're lost in history. Mm -hmm. So the only thing you have is how you treat your children, the people around you, your impact on the world around you. You know, you, qu you quickly, very few of us are Napoleons. Very few of us are going to be infamous yeah. um, or famous. So we could quickly just get lost in time. Mm -hmm. this, is, this is the deepest story we've read, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> is it, is, that's because it's literature, Steve, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, in a lot of novels, you follow the money, right? And like, that's obviously, I'm like a detective fiction reader, and that's a big issue You're, you like detective novels i you do think? canadian here, you like canadian detective novels <laughs> <laughs> i might have read one or two but here you follow the art and here's the thing when the people that night are like who do we need to call who do we need to tell little do they know that arthur leander is really special to this little girl who's just kirsten and raymond who's in this production and he has given her a, a, these two comic books, which we don't find out about for a moment, but he's given her these comic books. And on that night, after Arthur dies, Tanya gives Kirsten a glass paperweight because her parents haven't shown up to pick her up. Right. So here this, think about little Kirsten, right? The man she's playing opposite in this play, she's only eight years old. She's a couple days shy of her eighth birthday. So Tanya gives her this paperweight. Kirsten, teary-eyed and breathless, a few days shy of her eighth birthday, gazed at the object and thought it was the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the strangest thing anyone had ever given her. It was a lump of glass with a storm cloud trapped inside. Now, this is the paperweight that grown up Kirsten has in her backpack 20 years later. And it's the, it has no utilitarian value, right? In the apocalypse, there are no stacks of paper to be held down against wind, right? I mean, this is, but this idea of this little glass ball with a cloud inside, the notion of using art to capture nature, just as you were saying earlier, Chip, this is something that's so beautiful and strange. And what a strange gift for an eight-year-old, right? <laughs> but she loves it. And it becomes one of her prized possessions. And I'm going to throw another part. You mentioned the comic book part of it, which is usually thought of as disposable art. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's there for the illiterate, there for the everyday person. It is disposable versus Shakespeare, which is timeless. And it becomes so important to our story here. It is so central, this single piece of art, this disposable, childish piece of art becomes so important to our story. Also, graphic novels are awesome. And you guys... <laughs> <laughs> we talked to Eddie Campbell. We know that. We know that. <laughs> but just to say a word about those two comic books that she has in her backpack, the Dr. Eleven comic books... And they're both like produced on a vanity press. And so she has copy two of 10 of book one and copy three of 10 of book two. And inside there's like a fancy dog called Luli. And as she's reading comic book two, which is post-apocalyptic, Dr. Eleven's on the space station looking back at Earth. Dr. Eleven stands, quote, I stood looking over my damaged home and tried to forget the sweetness of life on earth. 
there we are right back with Milos in the epigraph, right? This notion that even destroyed, there's something so sublimely beautiful about the world, about the earth. And, and comic books are never known for subtlety. Right. So, <laughs> so like mythology. Yeah. So, I mean, once again, and like Shakespeare, basically it's meant to hit you over the head with what the themes are. Mm-hmm. And, and we get, uh, Kirsten is also looking for gossip magazines and she finds this other disposable art these gossip magazines and pictures of arthur and stories about arthur keep popping up through these publications it's an interesting viewpoint on art and publication here what 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 the future holds is unclear but we have these publications that might give us a a history of the earth is our author um american She's Canadian. She's Canadian. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, my, my thought, though, is, you know, does the rest of the world look at Hollywood like the people of North America kind of look at Hollywood? You know, these gossip magazines and stuff like that. That celebrity. Kind of, kind of trash. Kind of um, where, not the, the royalty, but we certainly put them on a pedestal mm-hmm. above the normal everyday I, I would say that they are equatable to the royalty of many countries where we don't have royalty we don't we don't do the same thing for the president for instance sure but for those hollywood royalty we admire them and we look into their lifestyle more than anybody else's for for some obsessive reason and, and historically actors have been thought of as Kind of the disposable, have they? Uh, that's, there, there's certainly that line between, oh, you're just pretending, and boy, we think that this art is important. Uh, I keep coming back to the beginning of this pandemic. Everybody went to their streaming services and watched Netflix and watched Hulu and had art as an important part of their day in this pandemic and then when we get back to whatever normal is going to be there's still going to be conversations about whether we should be funding art whether that's important to our lives and and we did the same thing i mean we contacted pam and pam and all of us got together and we said let's let's go and grab something and what did we want something in the public domain that we would that we resonated that everybody thought they had read mm-hmm. and we went and got Sherlock Holmes. Mm-hmm. We did the same thing. Yeah. Art imitating life. Well, there we well, go. And one thing that I love about Station Eleven is that Mandel really looks at such a wide array of artistic products, just as we were saying, from graphic novels, Shakespearean plays, gossip magazines. Certainly when they when Kirsten and August go into houses, Kirsten looks for gossip magazines. But August looks for the TV guide because he loved television and he misses it so much. August is just a couple years older than Kirsten. So since the pandemic happened when she was almost eight, he was 11. He had watched so much more TV than she had. You guys know the stats on how many hours of television children (laughs) process. And so, and he would, and there's something so like sad, but also kind of amazing about thinking of this, this young man, this 31 year old guy looking through TV guides and like remembering episodes, remembering shows like that's very relatable, but also there's this a quotation that I think is amazing that comes up again and again throughout this novel. And by the way, one of my students in the spring met with me on zoom and showed me his tattoo of this quotation that he had just had done a couple days earlier because survival is insufficient. 
Hmm. This is a quotation that's on the side of the traveling symphony's vans. And it's also tattooed on Kirsten's arm and one of my students' arms now. Because survival is insufficient, we have to do more than survive. What a fantastic motto for for life, right? Survival's not enough. Life is meant for the living. And you only have a short time and go out and figure out what fills you up. Watch more TV. That's why you need art. That's yeah. why you need TV. That's why you need whatever, exactly, whatever fills you up, as you say. And I love that in different places in the novel, it is phrased as survival is insufficient, but I like it with the because, because then it's an answer to a question, right? Why do we do this? Because survival is insufficient. It's so because Fodor told me to. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I've got bumper stickers that I give away to my students because that, Fodor told me to. That that is a beautiful quote. That that truly is. It, it kind of grabs. A, there's so much to be thought of in that. That's that's a great quote. Mm-hmm. There's chapter six uh, gives us a list of things that we are missing post-apocalyptic, and uh, boy, there's there's a lot of things <laughs> that we are trying to get back to in our post-apocalyptic world. So one of the questions that we always ask when when we teach pandemic or apocalyptic literature is like, what would you miss the most, right? If you live in a post-apocalyptic society. Now, because we never lost electricity, because we never lost entertainment, I think we go, we go down the list a little bit. But I do think that missing like she she notes all these things entertainment pharmaceuticals flight right but certainly for me the thing i've missed the most is seeing my parents because the border between canada and the u.s is still closed so seeing my family and friends has been incredibly upsetting i think in this kind of apocalypse you would miss mobility in general, right? Because I've been talking to my family and friends practically every day for the last 15 months, maybe even more than before the pandemic. I just haven't seen them in person. But in in the Station Eleven pandemic, all of a sudden, you're kind of limited to two to five miles, right? Because within a few years, there's no more gas. Even airplane gas lasts a little longer. So now you're relying on horses, <laughs> you're, you know, you're very limited bicycles. The, the world becomes very small, very quickly. <laughs> exactly. And all the things that connected you to the expanded world, you know, to get to you become very challenging. Think of, think of what spices meant. Mm-hmm. Salt and pepper. Mm-hmm. Okay. You have salt and pepper. We, in fact, we have lots of salt and pepper. Okay. Now you got through two years, three years. Okay. But 20 years. Yeah. All of a sudden, your food becomes bland. Your world becomes very small. The extended connections you have to the world, they become very small. You know, it it takes a a, um, adventurous type to expand beyond that. And basically what you're doing is you're giving up your little area to to go explore some other area that's a long way away. Mm -hmm. How interesting. And no more internet. This is, this is. Steve, Steve, could you survive? uh, Boy, do I even remember the time before the World Wide Web? It was, uh, it was a black and white world, Steve. It, I, 
I remember having computers before the World Wide Web and trying to convince my students that computers work without the internet is, is, is pretty difficult at this point. They don't understand. They don't understand that this computer, this machine can work independently. It has to be some sort of website to go do things. You have to have cassettes, Steve. <laughs> And then you have to figure out, like, you know, what does the vampire do? And you put in uh, lift window, right. close window, you know, whatever that thing is. Right. The, the idea, and it's an interesting part of the theme of, of what we're missing, is that they find someone who's trying to find the internet in this section, that they've discovered that there's they remember this thing called the internet and they're sure they're certain that it must be out there that if we get this bicycle and we generate enough electricity we can make this computer work and this computer will therefore connect to this magical thought of the internet and i was so intrigued by that concept 20 years out that somebody has heard of the rumor of this thing called the internet and they're like oh well i'll go find it all right i've lost the word what is it is it post-punk what is the um the term for the mixture of like the 1800s and the modern steampunk. world steampunk that's the word i'm looking for so they're they're trying to create the steampunk world steampunk internet <laughs> you're, you're right <laughs> well, and i think it's very important that when she gives that incomplete list in chapter six of all the things you would miss um the very she loves endings right and so the end of that list is this big one no more internet and then she goes on to detail what that really means no more social media no more scrolling. No. Wait, wait, wait. No more scrolling? No. Wait, there's too much scrolling now. <laughs> so no more scrolling through litanies of dreams and nervous hopes and photographs of lunches, cries for help and expressions of contentment and relationship status updates with heart icons, whole or broken, plans to meet up later, pleas, complaints, desires, pictures of babies dressed as bears or peppers for Halloween. No more reading and commenting on the lives of others, and in so doing, feeling slightly less alone in the room. No more avatars. End of part one. I love that idea. Like, now you have to be yourself. Wow. Right? You can't be a big blue cat person, Steve. That's, that's a different avatar. I was thinking of the, the uh, last airbender. <laughs> <laughs> the, just those three words, no more avatars. That, that is such a striking ending to part one where we see who we are today through these lenses of all of these things that we do these activities and if all of these activities were suddenly stripped away we would have to be somebody different it, it, it's a miracle that we are where we are today <laughs> yeah and at the same time you, you realize that i guess through natural causes unnatural things happening to the earth it could all be stripped away isn't that like the fear all of us have on some primal level mm -hmm. that's why we read post-apocalyptic yeah. we don't have to live it then we because can just read we it we can just read about it hopefully <laughs> it, it won't be it's not real no we won't there won't be a worldwide pandemic never don't worry about it it's make-believe <laughs> <laughs> so part two brings us 20 years in the future, even though we've had lots of suggestions in part one that we're going to go there. Now, I really like this like 20 years because lots of pandemics do like the next week 
and some do three centuries later. So this 20 years is kind of an interesting time perspective because we can picture that. Like 20 years from now, hopefully all goes well. We'll still be here. We can. I, I, I'm going to use a comic book reference on that because Jack Kirby talked a little bit about this when he was creating the Marvel Universe. And he said that um, we can vision future 30 years in, in the future. We can, we can mm-hmm. today, you can think about 30 years from the future. This is what you go too far, much farther than that. And all of a sudden you just have no anchor to it. It just becomes blah, blah. Yeah. So this idea of 20 years in the future, you can picture that. Right. Do you remember the new year's day 2001 when they trotted out arthur c clark and said hey it's 2001 and we haven't seen aliens yet you were wrong and he, he had to sit there and go all right sorry <laughs> that's not how science fiction works <laughs> but, but it happened this happened I, new year's rock and eve here's arthur c clark to apologize for for 2001 not being what we thought it was going to be but george orwell's 1984 is not real uh, or... he was only off by 20 years his math was off by and, and, and the thing is about that it's not the government putting up the cameras we're putting up our own cameras and we're paying for them oh M. <laughs> there's that was uh, certainly missed <laughs> so now in this as we learn about the world 20 years later and it's awesome because of course we follow the traveling symphony so we get to see a few different places but they travel slowly right i mean they're traveling with horses and so they're not exactly making making a ton of ground and they're in that area between ontario and the u.s because the borders now totally irrelevant and and the no border crossings anymore and so this is a you know this was nice for me because this is an area i know well but what struck you about the world 20 years later i loved the the childish fascination with electricity like that is the thing that as a child these characters had electricity they remember the the glory the magic the miracle that is our electrical grid and they are just hoping that they can find some way to get back to something like what they had so i mean think about how important it is i mean before electricity it snows in the mountains and you're out there shoveling clean snow and you're throwing in some cave so that in July you can try to have ice cream with electricity. We have gone from, well, there's an ice box to almost every person in North America has a, a refrigerator. Mm-hmm. And that means you can buy food that lasts and uh, fresh food can last and stuff like that. Your whole world immediately changes. All of a sudden your foods that you're eating or like whatever is local can can grow. I mean, I guess we could eat lots and lots of corn, but I mean that would be in the Midwest. Hundreds of years. That's right. More corn. But I just invented whiskey. <laughs> but on the other point, I mean that your world becomes very small, mm-hmm. and and the the foods that you eat change dramatically. I, I'm using foods, but it could be any other. Everything, everything about your day is dependent upon electricity. We are super dependent on this miracle. How many, how many hours uh, a day do you spend hunting and gathering for food? Not, not as many as I used to. Well, I mean, out here, Getting we have to travel to the grocery store, and that's a little ways away. That's true. That's a trip. But for, for um, most people, they can go to one and fairly quick, quickly and, and get the food. How about you, Pam? So I really loved the 
Also, I love that the Traveling Symphony is a great way to see the world. And when they go to St. Deborah by the water, a town that they were in a few years earlier, and they left behind one of their people, um, or two of their people. Two. One has a name and one does not. Yes, (laughs) that will be important. (laughs) (laughs) But everything has changed. And this struck me as completely plausible that they go into this little town and it kind of has a weird vibe. And the people live in, I think it's interesting, they live in fast food restaurants. Um, and so with, Structures. Whatever you, structures they can mm-hmm. find. Uh-huh. Exactly. And and now St. Deborah by the Water has a prophet. And this prophet is super creepy. And mm-hmm. they realize like it's a doomsday cult. And so he wants them to leave behind their 15-year-old uh, musician because he's looking for another wife. So this is like super creepy time. And it's so well written. It, it oh is my gosh, totally. Creepy. It is, and, and you as the reader really feel for these characters and feel like they need to get out of this situation as soon as possible. This is going to lead to uh, sadness in the, in the small sense or uh, real tragic loss in the big sense. So can we go to the end of part two? <laughs> she, she likes endings almost as much as you do. She Pam. does. Absolutely. I was like, oh, yes, this is a person who pays attention to her endings. So at the end of part two, Traveling Symphony is kind of fleeing St. Deborah by the water. And they've told the little boy who's the sentry, we can't take you with us. We don't want to be accused of kidnapping. Sorry. Good luck, buddy. And so (laughs) at the end of part two, Kirsten pulls out her child-sized Spider-Man backpack and she's looking through her items. She has a bunch of practical items like a lock picking device and a bottle, a couple of bottles of water. But she also has that beautiful glass paperweight. She has the Dr. Eleven comic books, the gossip magazines. She has these items of art. And here's how this part ends. She liked to look through the clippings sometimes, a steadying habit. An older picture that she found in an attic stuffed with three decades worth of gossip magazines taken before she was born. Arthur with his arm around the pale girl with dark curls who would soon become his first wife. Caught by a photographer as they stepped out of a restaurant. The girl inscrutable behind sunglasses. And Arthur blinded by the flash. End of part two. So it's so interesting that we return to Arthur Leander, this man that Kirsten had known only briefly, and we see that he's like blinded by the flash of celebrity, Mm. right? And so he's to become King Lear, but when he was younger, he didn't know what he wanted. And he has this like startled look of this Canadian guy from a small town who suddenly finds himself in Hollywood and doesn't know how to handle it beautiful metaphor simple but deep metaphor but you know let's go back to her she's got these collection of things Mm -hmm. and i'm reminded of the book that we read about tom hanks and tom hanks um for those who don't know that he's an actor and he was also when he was younger he moved around a whole bunch and in fact he learned because he moved around so quickly the rule was don't ever own more than you can put in the car before you, you, you're heading out of Dodge, wherever you're going to your next place. Mm-hmm. So she has this collection of stuff that she could 
pack in her bag and, and leave any moment. It was, it was later in life where Tom Hanks' second wife was the one that settled him and said, you know, you can actually, you can have a home. You can, you don't have to feel like you're always meandering. You, you always have to get out of someplace. Mm -hmm. That is, and that's settling yourself and being calm in, in, in the world. She is not settled or calm in the world. So not only do we get this about the actor, this, these insights, we're getting an insight on her that she's got to be ready to go anytime. And I'm glad you bring that up, Chip. Also, this is a steadying habit for her. Looking at these images of this man she knew only briefly, but also the clippings of his celebrity, his movement across his life, mm -hmm. this moment for her, this is steadying her, helping her to figure out what her own place in life is. Those totems, the the mm -hmm. idea of collecting those things throughout your life. I, I mean, we're we're in the studio right now, and and my wall is covered with these totems, these these images of this is where I was at this moment. This is what I was doing at this moment. This is how I connected to all of the world as such my my little corner of it and having that little backpack that child-sized spider-man backpack that, boy this is such good metaphor well i'm i'm going to show it throw a little reality into it that's beyond what the the, the story is telling us what you're noticing now ebay at your local uh bookstore whatever all those Elvis uh, memorabilia, all that depression glass, all those things that you, your grandparents were collecting mm -hmm. um, means so little. It's being dumped on the market mm -hmm. right now. So if you, the, what you find important today mm -hmm. may have no value in the future. And it might be so personal that it has no value today to anybody other than me. That's where that idea of nostalgia is, is embedded in this story. So, so the museum you're creating for yourself uh -huh. in your basement or wherever you're keeping your mementos that remind you of the places you've been in life, mm -hmm. they're, they're just yours. It's, just it's, it's your personal museum. I love it. I still love it. <laughs> <laughs> of course we do. As you should. <laughs> and we'll see him on hoarders. No, <laughs> no, no we'll, we'll see. We'll see him on the convention circuit where we go around, hopefully, very soon, around to all of our pop culture and see all these people and talk to these people. That's what's coming up next in in the post apocalyptic life of Chip and Steve. So at this <laughs> point, we'll just go. America's Got Talent. We'll give uh, Pam. We'll give her a stars, or we're going to give her a golden ticket for picking this book. This is a this is a great book, Pam. <laughs> Thank you so much for bringing it to us. What is our assignment for next week? So next week we'll read parts three and four. And so whether you're doing the audiobook or paper, it's chapters 13 through 26 but part three and four this is a great book i i hope that everybody is is considering reading this with us if you haven't read it yet uh, first of all spoilers this show is all about spoilers so, so you should be reading along with us uh i don't know chip i think we have enough information to survive another week what do you think only if we can come back next week what do you think pam i'll be here
All right. We would love to hear from you again. Hopefully you are reading along with us. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Leave us a voicemail. We would love to hear from you. Uh, send us an email. Our email is sandwiches at regular hours at gmail.com. Our website is sandwiches at regular hours.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Chip Hassenblunt. And I'm Pam Bedore. We'll see you in the future.